Um, coming up now, though, is a conversation with someone who is an overachiever. <laughs> That's one way to describe him. Super smart, super dedicated. Um, he is an award-winning South African poet and social philosopher. Um, this year, he bagged another award for his uh, poetry. He won the Salt Lake European Union Poetry Award. And this just adds to his award cabinet as far as um, poetry is concerned. But he's also the first person to earn master's degrees from five global-ranked universities. Um, he has a bachelor's degree from Wits University, but over and above that, he holds master's degrees from MIT, uh, MIT Sloan School of Management, London School, and London Business School, and then the University of Oxford, Harvard University, and the London School of Economics and Political Science. I mean, how many people can actually have that claim to fame. And that's not all. Um, he does great work in the community and in building this country as a strategist and as an academic. Um, and uh, it is the one and only Athel Williams. Good afternoon, Athel. Good afternoon, Zania. Wonderful to be here. Yes, it's great to have you here. I thought, oh, we're going to have him in, on Skype in Cape Town. But no, you are here with us in Johannesburg. And I know that work brings you here, but it is work we can't really talk about. Because it is of uh, national importance. Right now, I hope to be back one, you know, at some later point to talk about that work. But for now, perhaps better we don't talk about yes, it. Yes, <laughs> yes. We'll come back a little bit later yeah. when all of these things are concluded. But, you know, your story is its the kind of story that is of unlikely success, if I can put it that way. Because you write about your journey of growing up in Mitchell's Plain and from that kind of upbringing to being an award-winning author and to being someone who holds these five master's degrees it's an incredible one. I agree. It's it's unlikely. And I guess, you know, for me, I've always sort of been driven by my dreams. And it sounds so childlike, and maybe it should be childlike, in the sense that, you know, when we're kids, we kind of have these things, we we, we believe we're invincible, right? Yeah. We believe we can fly. It's possible. Right? Everything it's is possible. possible. Exactly. And I've just always held on to that, mm -hmm. um, of the things I really wanted to do. And, you know, I was a nerd when I was a kid, and people called me book cop, you know, at home, at home. Um, but I dreamed of going to these amazing universities. And when you're growing up in Mitchell's Plain, as you say, on the Cape Flats during apartheid, you're dreaming of going to Oxford or Harvard is fantasy, mm -hmm. right? It's not even ambition. It's just pure fantasy. Mm -hmm. um, but I held on to those. And so, you know, I, I sort of believed in excellence. And so whereas I could have gone to other places and done other things, these are the things that I really wanted to do. Yes. Yeah, so where did that sense of excellence come from? Because... Um, Yours is a story, you know, that a lot of people will hold up as an exception to say to other people, you see, you can make it too. And then on the other side as well, there are those that say, well, uh, uh, why can't you make it like him? Yeah, you know, I think for all of us, there's a story written for our lives. Um, and I think in, in South Africa, and again, my, in a context of growing up in apartheid, but I think even today, there's a story written for our lives. So it depends on, you know, if you're a woman, if you're a man, there's a story for your life. If you're black, if you're white, there's a story. If you're gay, if you're disabled, we've, society's created these expectations of who we should be, right? They've created the boxes for us. Mm -hmm. And I think it's up to us to decide whether we're going to live by that story or create our own story. And so for me, I was very clear that my story was, you know, I was going to work in a factory. I was going to work on a farm. Um, there was a story written for my life. And I rejected that story mm. and so said, I want to write my own story. And when you write your own story, why not write one where you're the superhero, yeah. right? And so that was, for me, I wanted to write that story. I wanted to live that life of excellence, of doing the best I could. But then importantly, to then come back, having lived that story and then tell others about it mm -hmm. um, and say, you know, so my, my, I'm not trying to tell people to follow what I did, 
But I do want to encourage people to follow their dreams because their dreams would be different to mine. Yeah. But why not live that dream of being the superhero of your own story? Yeah. I want some of that detail now because in your book, Pushing Boulders, you remind us that though life requires, it requires us to push these enormous boulders at times. Um, it's also not about the boulders, but it's about the dreams, as you've, as you've talked about, the dreams that await you, that are achievable. Yeah. But what are the, the things, these boulders that were there in in your life that you discovered you could push out of the way to achieve your dreams yeah I, you know i think so i experienced boulders are for example you know i was in high school in the in the 80s and in 1985 for example the schools were closed for half yeah, of the year a state of emergency absolutely mm. right and so um i think all of these things give you a choice and so there's that boulder of saying well now i can't complete my schooling this year and I just made the call to say, no, I'm going to complete it. So I went to night school, which is for adults only. And I kind of went to those adult <laughs> classes. I went to weekend classes. I got extra books where I could. And so for me, the boulder of saying I couldn't complete my high school, I decided to push out of the way. Um, and I'll give you another example, which I talk about in the book, Pushing Boulders, was when I applied to go to MIT. Mm. Um, now, I, I applied to go to MIT, got in, but didn't have any money to go. Mm-hmm. So I applied for a scholarship, a U.S. scholarship. But they dictated which university I could go to. And it was one of the lowest ranking universities in America. So you had a choice again, right? Fully paid, you know, fully funded, but low level university or one of the best universities in the world with yeah. no money. Yeah. So a boulder, right? And so how do I deal with this boulder? I decided to live by excellence. So I decided to go to MIT, mm. go to Boston without knowing anyone, without a place to live, without any money to pay for anything. So I lived homeless in Boston. I'm at age of 24 mm. because I was that determined that I wanted to go to MIT versus going to the low-level university with everything taken care of. Well, when you say homeless, are you saying sleeping under bridges and going to varsity, using the bathrooms to, to kind of shower, staying on campus as long as you can for, what, for, for the time that you're allowed to stay on for? Or are you saying are there facilities, are there places you could go as a person who was homeless? Living in public places. Um, uh-huh. I used... I joined the gym at the university, um, so I could use the showers there. I could put my suitcase in a locker mm-hmm. um, and then go to classes. Mm. I, um, for food, I would attend events on campus where they then provided food. So literally, I keep joking about this. No matter what they were presenting, and often they were recruiting events, and they were probably <laughs> recruiting women, and I didn't care, right? I was there in the front oh, row because they were, they were giving out sandwiches. Mm. Um, and so that's what I did for, for a while, and it was only probably a few weeks, um, and then at some point, um, you know, the dean of the of the graduate school discovered there was this African guy running around sort of stealing sandwiches. Um, and so I had a meeting with him and explained my situation. And he then created a scholarship for me um, and it was a retrospective scholarship. It said, rack up all the bills and yes. then if your results are good, we'll cover all your expenses. Right. Um, and that focused the mind, right? But for me, it's, it's the spirit of, of saying there's a boulder mm. and you've got to decide whether you're going to the boulder win or you're going to win. Mm-hmm. But I really believe you only push that boulder if you believe what's on the other end of that boulder. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I keep thinking your people who say, oh, they want to be an actor, right? But then they're sitting, you know, working in an accounting job. Well, that's not the right direction for you to go. Right. Um, you know, you want to be a, um, you know, a doctor, but you're kind of, you know, working in, you know, in business. So it's this idea I call um, path of possibility. Mm-hmm. There's a path we need to follow. And you might not know all the steps along that path, but you know the first steps. So I knew I needed to go to MIT. I didn't know why, yeah. um, but I knew that was the right place for me to be. And so if it meant being homeless, if it meant living in an uncertain life, I was quite willing to do that. 
So when this MIT came after Wits University. That's right. Uh, and then MIT. Yes. Uh, and then what followed after that? So after MIT was um, the London Business School. Mm. Um, so at MIT, I did an uh, MBA, a Master's in Business, with a focus on strategy. Yes. I then wanted to augment that with finance. So I went to the London Business School um, to do the Master's in Finance program. Mm-hmm. And then it was a long gap. So I worked in business for a number of years. Yes. And then I wanted to turn my attention to social development and public policy. So then I went to Harvard. And I did a, a degree in public policy at Harvard, then to LSE um, in political philosophy, then mm-hmm. on to Oxford in political philosophy. Mm-hmm. And I'm still finishing my doctorate at, at Oxford as well. And that's why you're so sought after by CEOs, by different organizations. But you could also be a high-flying executive, but that's not the life you chose. You are choosing a life of academia and a life where you're pursuing uh, social justice um, as a social philosopher. Yeah. So as I mean, you know, almost 10 years ago now, when I decided to quit my high paying corporate um, career, I wrote a mission statement for myself mm. and it was by my words and deeds to enable and inspire others to thrive. So by my words and deeds to enable and inspire others to thrive. Mm-hmm. And that's what guides all my thinking now. So I think I can help others thrive by doing two broad things. The one is working to break down structural barriers for others to thrive. And that's thinking about inequality. That's thinking about um, those obstacles for people to break out of poverty. Yes. And that's a lot of my social justice work. And then the other one is to inspire people, to uplift people. And that's where my poetry comes in. That's where Pushing Boulders comes in. That's where my children's books come in. Yeah. Right? So it's break down barriers and lift people up. And I think in South Africa, you know, we're surrounded by so much negativity. Um, it is, it's almost a pathology of our negativity. Yes. I think we need inspiration. I think we need positive stories. Um, you know, and I'm holding here a book called Oki the Happy Tree, <laughs> right? And it's a book about just what does it take to be happy? And it's not superficial stuff. Mm-hmm. I think I'm happiest when I'm being who I am, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and you're different to me, so you, mm-hmm. you'll be happy in a different way. Mm-hmm. And so these are the kind of messages I try to, to, to share with children in schools, but also adults I meet. Yes. Um, and let's talk about Read to Rise. That's uh, the NGO that you uh, are part of, that you, you, you co-lead because it's a team. It's a team that would help to make this kind of effort uh, possible. So your focus is youth literacy, um, inspiring citizen, citizen citizenry, as you've just said, mm. uh, and of course, social justice. But your own personal library is over 5,000 books. And that's shrunken from 10,000 books it's a few right. years ago. So you know, I'm, I'm very modest. Live a simple life. I yes, reduced yes, things yes, down to 5,000. Yes. I also believe in living a simple <laughs> life, indeed. I love reading. And, and, you know, I think some people have more shoes in their cupboards they can wear. I've got you know, two pairs of shoes, and I've got more books than I can yeah, <laughs> ever can read. read. <laughs> um, but it's, th- it's this idea of being surrounded by books, of being inspired by books. Um, I've got some books from the 1600s. Wow. And it's an amazing experience to hold a book that's you near know, four or 500 years old um, and to be connected not only to the idea, but also to the people who held that book over the you know 400 years. Mm. Um, but so for me, it's about reading, it's about exploring ideas, um, and then sharing those ideas. Yes, yes. And hence you writing books, of course, uh, for children, because there are a number of barriers as to why we don't read as much as, as we should. Even in your own organization, you say that um, an avid reader and book lover, uh, um, or rather that a child who loves reading will mm. be good at school. If they're an avid reader, they love books. The consequence of that is that their education outcomes will be vastly improved. It's exactly that. Mm-hmm. And we've seen statistics, frightening statistics that say, 
78% of grade four learners are functionally yes. illiterate, yes. which means they might be able to read the words but can't comprehend it. Mm-hmm. Now, those are frightening numbers. You know, also, our research has shown that you know, more than half of homes don't have books that are appropriate for children. So what chance are we giving a child when we say, you know, go out there and, you know, and, and learn, but they don't have access to books. Yeah. And when there are books around, it's not appropriate for them. And so that's what we at Rita Rice started to address. We wanted to make sure children have ac- had access to age-appropriate books, mm-hmm. also books that were uplifting, not these negative messages, right? If you look at a lot of children's books and children's stories, there's so much violence. There's gender stereotypes. There's what boys do and what girls do. And there's racial stereotypes, but who the hero is and who the villain is. Yeah. And so we wanted to create books that are positive, that are uplifting, but also educational. Mm-hmm. Um, so we go into um, schools in uh, primary schools in Soweto, in Opopa, and in Mitchell's Plain where I grew up. Um, and every day we go into schools, getting children excited about reading yeah. and giving them these books. So we hand out books to, to children to take home. So at least they've got the one book at home. Yes, um, yes. And then we try and get the little libraries into their schools as well so they get access to libraries at, at, in their classrooms. Mm, mm, I think any, uh, if you if literacy is a passion area for you, uh, then take a look at the work that Read to Rise is doing in different communities. Um, and it's impressive work. They also try and partner with different high-profile people, Miss South Africa and so on to help to further excite the children about uh, the value of reading to how they turn out as individuals. So great work indeed, Ethel. Mm. Um, and then the other side is the poetry side. You just yes. light up when you talk about poetry. <laughs> I think it was Robert Frost who once said that poetry is when an emotion has found its thoughts and the thoughts have found the words. Mm. You know, That's a beautiful description. Yeah. So do you agree? And what what does poetry mean to you? I, I look at poetry, firstly, I think I, I agree with Robert Frost. I also have this idea that poetry comes from an inner overwhelming power. It's something that overflows from you and sort of flows onto the page through yes, your pen. Yes, this compulsion. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, and you're right, my face does light up when, you, when I talk about poetry because it's, it speaks to something deep within me. I see poetry as two things, one, a mirror and a window. Mm-hmm. And the mirror part is poetry helps us reflect upon our lives and upon our society. So I can hold up this mirror and say, is this, is this a society we want? Right. And in South Africa, it's very important to hold up that mirror. But importantly, then to have the window and through the window, we see possibility. And I like the combination of those two things. I want to reflect upon my life Mm -hmm. and then look into the future for possibility. And as a society, I think we need to look into the mirror and reflect and then look into possibility. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm always, I put those two intention all the time. We must look back, but also we must look forward. So why did you write under a pseudonym, A.E. <laughs> Balakistan? <laughs> For a couple of years, that's how you used to write uh, your poetry. It was a part of me that I, I, I saw these two parts of me as two very distinct parts. They were mm. sort of the business academic Athol and then the sort of creative poetic Athol. And I thought they needed to be separate. Yeah. And so I chose a pseudonym. And after a few years, I thought that's quite ridiculous, actually, because I am this one person. And why hide from this creative side of me? And in fact, I started seeing the creative side and the, and the inspirational side of me influencing everything else I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and so dropped, you know, poor little A. Balakis and sort of got, you know, dropped by the wayside. Um, and so I write now under my name, Apple. Yes, yeah. yes. It <laughs> makes things so much more simple. It does. <laughs> but a lot of your work also is inspired by the encounters that you have with ordinary people mm. uh, and particularly women. It's, in, it's an interesting observation. Mm. Um, you know, there's, a, there's this phrase called a, appropriation, right? Cultural appropriation yes. or gender appropriation. Yes. And it sort of has the idea that, you know, if I'm colored, I can't be writing right. about black people, black, yeah. right? Yeah. Or if I'm a man, I can't be writing as a woman. Mm. And I, as a poet, want to break through those sort of, those little barriers. Mm. So 
I think it's important for me as a poet and, and as a social justice advocate to understand the lived experience of different people. So I want to, for a time, yes. to think like a woman and experience a woman's pain and struggle um, and joy and understand from a disabled person's standpoint. So I think in poetry it allows me to do that. Mm-hmm. So I write a lot of poems. In fact, my two award-winning poems, the Sol Plyke poems, were both written as a woman in the, in the first person or about a woman's experience. Yes, yes. Um, so I'd say most Tell me about one of them because I, I worry that we might not have time to talk about both uh, the the, the, the women, the characters that you met. So, so the one is written where I'm, uh, someone's visiting a woman who's in prison. Mm. So it's a woman prisoner, and he goes to meet this prisoner with 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 great uh, trepidation because you know what is a and she's in prison for murder. And so you have this picture of what a murderer is, right? Right. And he gets in there and he meets this 18-year-old woman who's sort of frail. Um, she's drowning in her you know big prison gear, and basically she describes this life of. You know, she says, on the seventh time when he raped me, hmm. I then killed him. And it raises this question around, you know, we got this idea of good and bad people. Mm-hmm. And I think all of us, the people even think people we think are bad are often victims of something, right? So the guy who breaks into my car, the guy who, you know, does bad things around, often they are victims themselves. And so that poem was trying to move us towards compassion hmm. of saying people have done bad things, but let's understand their context as well. Mm. Uh, yeah, we're dealing with a very difficult rape case in the country right mm. now as we speak. So it's a very hard uh, conversation to have at the moment because when the issues are confronting you, um, it's hard for us to find that compassion. Absolutely. So and I think that's where the arts also come in, in giving expression to the complexity of life. But how do you feel about the place of poetry amongst the arts? You know, I think of incredible poets, but people don't. Not, simply don't know about them yeah. South African poets particularly And we just simply don't afford them the same kind of space There isn't enough noise or attention That's paid to the work and the contribution they're making Yeah, I agree I, Although I do think it's growing I think the last sort of five, ten years Poetry in South Africa has been growing tremendously mm-hmm. And I think and I think young people are embracing it Which I'm quite excited about You know, we have this, I think this false distinction Between page poetry and spoken word yeah. and i think it's a false distinction i think it's you know it's all written ultimately all spoken ultimately but i think um our young people are embracing the idea of spoken word of of expressing themselves and i think you can express even if it's ugly things but with beautiful words mm. and i think that's where we're growing in south africa of saying let me pr- let me express things beautifully mm-hmm. even there might be a dark message in it or some or pain in it mm. um, so i, think I know you get these lines and you're like oh exactly exactly <laughs> and you kind of go yeah, <laughs> yeah that's it um, I think it's growing and I'm very excited about the beautiful poetry you are producing. Mm. So, um, what's next? Is the, I could, are you done with, you're doing your PhD right now. Will that be it? <laughs> still pursuing no, more. No, no, that'll definitely be it. Um, I, um, I've got a post teaching at, um, at UCT. Yes. Um, and so I'm, I will use that role as my platform for both expressing my ideas. I want to see businesses playing a bigger role in society. Yeah. Not just doing CSR as marketing, but actually addressing real social problems in our country. And I think my combination of my business background, my academia allows me to do that. Mm-hmm. So that's breaking down those barriers I talked about earlier. And then I want to conti- continue writing and telling my story and helping others tell their stories importantly because yes. i think we've got amazing stories in south africa and very few of them get told yeah yeah in fact the the business what you just said about business is a conversation we had yesterday with uh, dr david harris um of the dg murray trust mm. about the role that business can start to play in solving society's issues uh, because this came out of um, shoprite zero rating a particular brand yes. of of uh, sanitary uh, pads and so the question is what can they do because they ha- 
they can scale where governments have limited resources, a small tax base and so on. NGOs have limited resources. Business is able to scale and therefore provide a meaningful response That's exactly. to the problem that we face. Exactly. I would, you know, my message to business would be to focus around their social um, areas that get involved. Mm. So what typically happens is every year businesses change what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, so one, you know, one year it's a vegetable garden, the next year they're painting schools. I say pick a community, pick an issue, right? And I would love to see businesses say they want to rid this province of illiteracy. Yes. They want to rid that province of that problem, mm. right? And work towards it over multiple years. Because mm-hmm. you don't address social issues with one year, Azania. It's got to be multiple year commitment. Yes. Right? And I think that's how we address the issues we face. So who's Ethel at home? Oh, I laugh a lot. I love laughing. I love hugging. Um, I don't take myself too seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I try and act with love uh, most of the time, even when I'm doing very serious work. And, you know, the work I'm doing right now in the, in the country is, is quite serious work. Yes. But um, I think I, I enjoy life. And, and I don't take continues my... to be a nerd. <laughs> exactly. I'll always be a nerd. Uh, Tabo on Twitter's listing says, please ask Ethel how many hours plus minus did he study in total? And what did it all cost? He's just amazing. Wow. Tabo says. <laughs> um, I, I don't know what it all cost all the hours, but I think I've studied full time for, I think it's 16 years or something crazy like that. Uh-huh. But what I've done is I've always mixed it in with doing other things. You know, I've started a number of NGOs. I've started my own you know, businesses. Um, I've had executive jobs. I've sat on boards of companies. Yes. And so I've mixed them all in, all in there. Okay. And here's a personal one. Nikki says, is your guest married? I'm trying to understand his time spent doing all the things that he does. Thank you for the question, Nikki. I am married and very happily married. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's about how we spend our time, right? I don't watch television. Um, I use my time very, very um, um, responsibly and judiciously. So I think you've got to give up, give up something, right? So I read a lot. I study a lot. I run businesses. But it means I give up other things. Um, mm, mm, and you're amazed mm. how much time you spend doing trivial things. Um, but again, it's a choice you make, TV. right? Yes, and watching, yes, yes. watching TV, exactly. You're watching, you know, sport all weekend. Uh-huh. So I do none of those things, which makes me sometimes also a bit seemed antisocial. Mm-hmm. But I think you make a choice consciously. Yes, and that choice you have made. Uh, all of the best. You're such an inspiration, Ethel. Um, so we'll have you back on another show, maybe to talk about strategy. Great. I'd love to. Thanks, Azania. <laughs> Thank you so much. That is uh, Ethel Williams, one of a kind, the first person to earn five master's degrees from five globally ranked uh, universities. And those are MIT Sloan School of Business Management, the London Business School, the University of Oxford, Harvard University, and the London School of Economics and Political Sciences and of course an undergrad from Fitz University and now a PhD with Oxford. He's written books, he's an award winner and of course um, uh, an academic and former a business animal, but a great contributor to our society. I think that's probably the title that uh, he holds dearest to his heart. Someone who's passionate about literacy and a builder of this country. That was Ethel.